All women should wear head coverings. It's clear as day. It's right there in the Bible. Paul commands it. So why are we ignoring it? Let's dive in together. This is Unshakable Church Culture. Well, thanks for joining me on Unshakable today as we begin a new series looking at issues and questions that arise out of church culture. Why do we do some of the things that we do and why do we not do other things? And if scripture is our standard for all churches, well, then why is there confusion over some things? And why is there even sometimes division when it comes to faith and practice? Today, we're going to talk about a growing controversy in the church, and that is the issue of head coverings for women. Now, head coverings have been worn by Christian women in various denominations for a long time, for centuries. Let me give you some examples. I'll put some pictures up on the screen. These are some photos that come from, uh, on the left, you see the brethren tradition, brethren churches, but also on the right, you see uh, the type of head covering that comes out of strictly reformed churches. And as you can see, both of these looks are they're feminine, they're modest, and you might even call them fashionable. Now, the type that we're more used to seeing are these, and these are the type of head coverings you see in Amish communities and in Mennonite churches. And again, these are the type of looks that we're more uh, familiar with when we hear about the term head covering. Now, I call this a growing controversy because whether you've heard of it or not, there is actually a pretty strong movement in Christian circles right now to return to head coverings for women. And surprisingly, it's not being led just by men. There are many women out there in Christian churches who are advocating a return to that practice. Now, I'm sure they mean well, but my guess is a lot of this has to do with a reaction to what's happening in the, the broader culture, this gender confusion that we're struggling with right now. So I think a lot of women in churches want to return to an older, more traditional practice. And that's one of the things we want to get into today. Is this just a movement in the church or is this an actual biblical mandate? And, and further, is, is Paul just trying to make sure that women feel subjugated in the church? Does he want them to feel humiliated by having to wear this garment on their heads? That's what the secular left would want you to believe. They, of course, would want you to look and see, see in the church, this is what the patriarchy does. It constantly oppresses women. But is that true? Now, the New Testament passage that talks about this subject is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's basically laid out as part of Paul's argument in that chapter in verses 1 through 16. And it's really the only place in the New Testament where you will find a discussion of head coverings. Let me just say this at the outset. This is a very difficult passage. Many books and articles have been written about it. There is very, there's a number of really interesting nuances to it. It's very controversial. And um, obviously, if you mix in the heightened emotions of gender equality in the church, this is a tough passage. So if I was really going to parse this, this, these 16 verses and do it really, really thoroughly, it would probably take four or five episodes, and I'm going to resist doing that because I want to keep this series flowing. What I want to do is to do a flyover treatment of what Paul says about this topic so that we can get to the actual bottom line. Now, there are three basic positions that you will find in churches today related to head coverings. Let me lay all three of them out, and then we'll talk about which one I think is most biblical. 
The first uh, position is that, that everything that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16, is completely cultural and time-bound to the city of Corinth in the first century, and therefore not at all applicable in the church today. The second position is actually the flip side, the opposite. They would say that Paul is describing a universal rule that is applicable to all churches in all times and all places. And therefore they would say women should always have their heads covered. So under that position, there are some subcategories or sub uh, positions uh, based on where people are in that particular camp. And some would say, yes, women in all public spaces should have their heads covered. Then there's some moderating positions. Some would say, well, women should have their heads covered in the Sunday worship service and in any type of church function where there is a mixed crowd, both men and women. And then there are others who say, well, women should have their heads covered, but only in the Sunday worship service. The third position is that head coverings are a meaningful symbol from a past period in church history that reflect a very important and essential Christian principle but that there's some flexibility in how that principle gets lived out as a symbol. Now, you can probably guess which of those three positions is my position, because if you know me at all, or you've been watching Unshakable, or tuned into the underground, or listened to our sermons, you know that we're about being balanced in the Christian life, that we don't just swing the pendulum either to that extreme or to that extreme. And so I think that third position is correct, and I'll explain why in just a moment. But let me also say, listen, this is my conviction. I have studied this passage. I've come to a place where I feel this is what the Bible says. So it's not a cultural decision. I'm not trying to make people happy. I believe this is what the Bible teaches. But having said that, there is room for disagreement. Other churches, other pastors, other Christians may disagree. And I think there's room for that, as we'll discuss as we go along. Now, the whole key to understanding Paul's big idea in this section of 1 Corinthians 11 is verse 3. So I'm going to put it on the screen. Let's look at this carefully. I want you to understand, he says, that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, you saw in that verse the term head used three different times, kephale in the Greek, and it's an important word. It basically refers to a functional ordering. And so you saw in that verse layers of authority and order that God has built into these particular relationships. Now, you may have noticed in that verse that there are three layers of submission and authority mentioned there, not just women. We have a tendency when we hear submission, we think about women, but the fact is all human beings are in varying degrees and roles of submission in life. So three things were there. First of all, God the Son is ordered under God the Father. Secondly, all men are ordered under Christ, and then all women are ordered under men. So each of those layers has its head or authority above it, and both glory and shame flow upward from those who are ordered below. Now, the key to understanding this passage is to know that it's not about ontology, it's about function. What is ontology? Well, that's where we, dis we discuss the issue of being or nature. This is an issue of function, not ontology. And if you look at that first layer of submission, we would never say that God the Son is inferior in being or nature to God the Father. And so the same thing applies with women. Women are not inferior to men. They're not any less valuable to God in any way. And we know that both men and women play absolutely vital and essential roles 
in church ministry. But having said that, there is a difference between the two sexes in terms of the roles that God wants us to play within church ministry. And that's why we talk about this being about function, because this ordering of roles within the body of Christ really matters to God. The principle of male headship is very, very important to God, and you see it reflected throughout the Bible. A functional ordering within the Christian community that reflects what we call the divine order, which was established at the very beginning back in the Garden of Eden. And that order goes back to the book of Genesis when it says that God made man first. He started with Adam and then he made woman out of man. And so in doing that, he established this functional order. Again, not ontological. We're not talking about a, a woman being inferior to man, just a unique ordering that again is important to God, important in the home, important in marriage, and of course, important in the church. And listen, God has spoken clearly on this subject, even though a lot of churches don't want to listen. It's like they've got their fingers in their ears. He has spoken clearly about the importance of male leadership in the church through elders who should only be men. That is an important part of ecclesiology or what we call church structure. And because the principle itself is rooted in Genesis, rooted in creation and not in culture, that means it's a principle that transcends time and certainly transcends cultural changes and societal opinions. So in a practical sense, what does this actually mean for Christian women today? Well, for women who are married, they are ordered under the authority of their husbands, first and foremost, and then secondarily under the male leadership of the church, the elder team. Uh, for women who are single or unmarried, they are ordered under the authority of just the elder team in their church. Now, before everybody gets all steamed up, because I know there's a lot of emotion involved in this, and I, I get that, let's make sure we remember the principle that we're all under authority and submission. Men are called to submission to Christ. That is a fact. The male elders of the church are not some independent body that can do as they please. They are under the authority of Christ. They are under shepherds of the great shepherd, so they will give an answer someday. And men who are not elders are first and foremost under Christ and then secondarily ordered and submitted to the elders of the church. So there's a lot of submission going around here. And listen, each of those layers is important to God. So that is the core principle that Paul is talking about in this chapter. I wanted to lay that foundation so that we can now get to what you came here for, which is the discussion of head coverings. But that foundation first has to be laid for us to understand what's going on with the garment itself. So let's talk about it, okay? The Bible often talks about the substance of things and then the symbol of that substance. In other words, the principle that we have to abide by and then how that principle gets expressed. And it's really important that we're able to make the distinction between the substance and the symbol. In this case, in 1 Corinthians 11, in these verses, the substance is the divine order. The substance is authority and submission, those layers we talked about. The symbol of how that got lived out in first century Corinth in these Greek churches is, of course, head coverings. And it's important to recognize that context because keep this in mind, Paul is writing to relatively new believers in a Greek church where the gospel was a fairly new concept in that part of the world. So this was bound to be controversial. It's sort of a clash of cultures. Because historically, think about this. We know that in first century Jewish culture, the public head covering of women was a, just a regular accepted custom. It was not unusual at all. 
And a Jewish woman did not view wearing a head covering as some type of humiliation. In fact, she would see it as part of her expression of devotion to Yahweh. See, history tells us that first century Greek women were much more socially liberal than their Jewish counterparts. So this issue of submission and authority and head coverings, this was all going to have to be a process that would definitely have its growing pains. We know this principle even today. With, even with new born-again life, it can be difficult to turn the tide of culture. So this was going to be a real challenge for apostles like Paul. And so Paul did what we know. He wrote a letter to the Corinthian church to clarify a whole laundry list of issues that he knew were going to come up because this was a Greek church. One of them being the issue of women in the congregation and this issue of authority and headship. And so what does Paul do? Well, he takes this well-established custom or symbol from Judaism of submission and authority, the wearing of head coverings, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the Corinthians and suggests to them that this is the proper expression of male headship in the church, that the Corinthian women would wear the head covering. Now again, this is about a symbol, not about the substance. The key question is going to be, how will the women in Corinth communicate their adherence to the principle, the core principle, which is the divine order. Now, this is where we get down to the street level, to the nitty-gritty. we got to ask the question, what is the practical teaching that Paul is giving here? When were the women of Corinth supposed to be wearing a head covering? Was it something they should do every day in public, or is Paul talking about specifically the worship service? What are the parameters that he's discussing here? Now, this is where so many people actually misread the passage, maybe because the emotion of the whole thing gets them all rattled. But the passage is very specific about when a woman needs to wear a head covering. It's not describing a perpetual covering. It's not even describing all women wearing a head covering in the worship service. The passage is very explicit about when this needs to happen, and you'll find it in verse 5. Let's take a look at it. It says, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. In other words, she brings disgrace upon all those who are ordered above her, Christ, her husband if she's married, and the male elders of the church if she prays or prophesies without her head covered. Now, a couple things about that verse. I am going to completely leave out the issue of prophecy because that's for a whole different show. Uh, But let's talk about the one thing in that verse that we know takes place in the church today, and that's praying. I am convinced that what Paul is describing here is praying publicly in the gathering of the church. So we're not talking about a woman having to cover her head during private prayer. This is praying out loud in the congregation where both men and women are present. So when a person stands up in the midst of the congregation and prays out loud, they are in some capacity functioning in a role of authority and leadership. Now, not as much as the man who stands in that pulpit and opens the Bible and says, this is God's word, not as much as that, but there is still an aspect of authority if you stand up and you lead the congregation in prayer. So it has to be handled in an appropriate way. Not appropriate to what culture says is okay, but according to what God says is correct. And look, Paul seems to be indicating that women are allowed to do that. And so before we just press on, we should say, wow, that's for a guy like Paul coming out of traditional Judaism, 
This is a very balanced position. This is a very progressive position for that day to say, look, it's okay for women to stand up in the congregation and to lead in prayer. But the caveat still remains, and this is what's so critical, right? If a woman is going to stand up and pray, or in that day prophesy in the congregation, she has to do it in a way that communicates visibly that she is in full support and affirmation of male headship in the church. And by the way, I'll talk about how that might apply at Oak Hill in just a second. But before I do that, let me just bring up a second big issue that comes through this passage another part of the substance that Paul wants to talk about here. And it's a, it's a huge issue today. It's, it's about biological sexes being confused. Uh, throughout this passage, Paul wants to make it clear that men need to look like men and women need to look like women, especially as they live out their individual roles within the body of Christ. So here's how that plays out in Paul's mind. If a woman were to get up on a Sunday morning and stand in the assembly of the saints and pray to lead the church in prayer, and do it with her hair down and her head uncovered, it would appear to the congregation that she was trying to look and function like a man. And that creates confusion. And this is why in verse 7 of this passage, God instructs men who are praying in the congregation not to cover their heads, so that they're not appearing as if they're trying to function or look like a woman while doing so. So this is all tied together in Paul's argument in this chapter. Not confusing biological sex or gender is important to God. And that's why also in this passage, and this is also very controversial because of our culture today, Paul goes on to talk about how we wear our hair, how long our hair should be. And he talks about how men with long hair and women with very short hair can promote confusion of the sexes. And he believes, this is again the big part of the substance of his teaching here, it's imperative that we make things clear about men and women, how we look and how we function according to God's divine order. Now, let me briefly address, um, I guess you'd call them my opponents, um, uh, those who would object to what I'm teaching here today, uh, who we call egalitarians. These are professing believers who say there really is no difference between male and female in the church. All the roles are open uh, according to skill level. That's it. And God doesn't care about how this divine order plays out. They love the cultural context of the book of 1 Corinthians. It's their trump card, if you will. They can look at all of it and just write it off and say, well, that's a cultural issue from the first century. It doesn't apply to us anymore. And by that reasoning, they can go out now and justify female elders, female pastors, and say that women can do anything, including openly teach and preach a mixed congregation of both men and women. Here's the problem with that. And this goes back to what I said earlier about making sure that we can make distinctions between the substance and the symbol. The egalitarians love to point to the symbols and say, yeah, that's outdated. We can't do that in our culture today. And here's what I want to say. This is very important. Symbols can change over time. Substances don't. Okay, So the core principles of God's Word, they transcend time. They transcend culture. We can never mess with them. But symbols of those things, they can be flexible with time and culture. And if you doubt that that's true, let me give you a parallel example because we actually do this a lot in the church. We keep the substance intact, but the symbols look a little bit different. I could point to all, all kinds of things 
maybe talk about music or worship, all kinds of technologies that we use where symbols now look different in the modern world. But to me, the best example of all is communion. And it's especially appropriate to look at that because that's the very next topic that Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 11. So he talks there about, well, how should the church live out communion? Well, we all understand the substance of communion. We understand the core meaning behind it. That never changes. But what is communion rooted in? Well, first of all, it's rooted in the ancient Jewish Passover. And then secondly, it's it's rooted in that upper room scene where Jesus spends that Passover night with his disciples. Keep in mind, those are both ancient settings. Now, from those ancient settings, come over to the modern period and ask the question, does that mean we have to live out the Lord's table today in the exact same way? The substance doesn't change, but the symbol can be flexible. Uh, Does that mean that we have to live out communion the same way the Jews did in 1500 BC? I hope not. Or even in the time of Christ in that upper room? I don't think so. Do we have to use wine? Because we don't at Oak Hill Bible Church. Do we have to use unleavened bread? We oftentimes don't. Do we have to do it just like the early church did where they ate a full meal first before they uh, observed communion? Because we don't often do that. Can we pass the elements or do we have to lay them out on a particular table? All kinds of practical issues about the symbol rise to the top. Is it possible to adhere to the core principle to stick to that substance like glue and refuse to budge, but at the same time use symbols that are more fitting and more relevant to our modern day culture? Obviously, that's the way we do it today. Our communion services don't look like either of those ancient settings But trust me, the core principle has not changed. Now, coming back to our topic of head coverings, in a similar way, the issues of male headship and submission and authority and those layers that we talked about, those things are not in question. They're not up for debate at Oak Hill Bible Church. We will hold fast to those things. But we can discuss how those principles get expressed in our worship services. So, Let me wrap up today by getting really practical about how we do this at Oak Hill Bible Church. At our church, and this is a a conviction that our elder team has, again, other churches may disagree, other pastors may disagree, but we have chosen to err on the side of caution on this issue, meaning that we don't currently ask our ladies to stand up and lead in prayer on a Sunday morning. We just don't ask them to stand up and sort of take on that, the, the burden of that controversial issue. Uh, to take on the possible burden of causing confusion in the body. So for the sake of all, we think it's the loving position to not ask ladies to stand up and do this. Now, am I saying that it would be wrong if one of our godly ladies, maybe even one of our deaconesses, uh, stood up on a Sunday in the congregation and led us in prayer? No, I'm not saying that because I think Paul allows for it here. We would never allow or ask one of our ladies to stand in the pulpit and teach or preach but there is room for leading in prayer. But let me make this clear as well. If our elder team ever did get to the place where we decided as a team that we were gonna ask a woman to stand up in church and and lead in prayer, we would absolutely wanna be faithful to this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. We would wanna require, as Paul does here, a visible sign that this woman who was standing up understands the, the substance of the issue of submission and that she affirms the divine order and male headship in the church. And yes, that may look like wearing an actual head covering. That might make the most sense, provided that she's on board with it, that she doesn't feel like we're being 
uh, we're trying to humiliate her in some way, but that she views it as a godly thing. That would be the caveat. All right, well, that's enough for one episode. We have really launched this new series with, I think, a really good topic. Um, Hopefully that was enough to get to the bottom line if you were curious about head coverings. But listen, if you have more questions, uh, certainly always feel free to send me a text or an email. We can grab coffee. We can talk more about this subject. But hopefully I answered some of your basic questions. Uh, and I hope it was edifying. I hope it builds you up. I hope it, I hope it helps you understand more about this issue of male and female submission, authority, divine order. Those are really important things to God. So I pray it was a blessing to you guys. All right. We'll see what comes up next in terms of topics. Until then, remain unshakable and keep loving each other well.